Welcome back to another episode of Mass Office Hours. Our Black Friday sale ends today, November 29th at midnight Eastern time. We're offering 30% off our monthly, yearly, and lifetime subscriptions. So I encourage you to check those out at massresearchreview.com. Thank you so much to everyone joining us live on YouTube this evening. And I encourage you to ask a question or leave a comment in the chat. And please don't forget to like this video. If you're listening later on Spotify or Apple Podcast, please rate our podcast five stars and share this episode with a friend. I'm joined this evening by Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms will be joining us shortly. Dr. Eric Trexler is noticeably absent this evening, although he's monitoring everything from the back end. We hope he feels better very soon, but we will take this opportunity to say as many disparaging things about him as possible in our effort to permanently kick him off the live office hours. Dr. Zordos, how you doing? I'm doing great now that it's, uh, you know, just just you and I here because, you know, the Eric's, they have their own show. There's another show that they have. They do that show. I, I don't I don't I don't listen. But um, now I think we're taking over here so the people can see Dr. Trexler on. They can say hi to him. He's not going to say hi back, um, which is good because I heard his voice earlier and it's not it's not looking strong tonight. Um, but I think I think it's probably going to be the best one yet. People are already saying so I'm doing great. And it's good to be here with you. I think that Z Nation will probably be trending tomorrow. So I look forward to that. Fantastic. All right. So let's get started. And then once Dr. Helms joins, he'll just jump right into the chat. Sounds good? Let's go. All right. So the first question for you is about the potential influence of recovery modalities on performance recovery. So we're talking cold water immersion and massage. And you wrote an article about this for Mass earlier this year. So can you give us some insight into how these recovery modalities might help us recover and, and return to optimal performance? Absolutely. Recovery modalities is something that over the past few years, I've enjoyed writing about in Mass on a few different occasions. And it's just going to sound contradictory because to start plainly and bluntly, I think recovery modalities are a bit overrated. So then you'll say, well, why would you enjoy writing about those? Well, I enjoy writing about those because I do think that the tide for a while had shifted toward being, you know, obsessive over which recovery modality is best, you know, not, not necessarily asking, do I need one? But which one do I need? How long do I need to do it for? What's the appropriate timing of it? So saying recovery modalities are overrated is certainly a strong statement. It doesn't mean I don't think they're useful, but let me discuss why I think they're overrated and then specifically get to cold water immersion and massage as Lauren was talking about. So when I say that they're overrated, I think of a few criteria that need to be met for me to utilize or recommend a recovery modality. And those criteria are that they must be practical, they don't need to take a lot of time, and they need to be low or no cost. And so when I see that as something that is impractical, 
If it's impractical, it needs to have a really, really large benefit. So if we take things like Lauren mentioned, cold water immersion, massage, and then we take some other activities that are a bit more practical, maybe low intensity walking or cycling and foam rolling, things like that. In general, if we take all of those modalities, they all tend to have some sort of beneficial effect to attenuate muscle soreness or alleviate muscle soreness following a hard bout of resistance training. And certainly that's a good thing. But the things I want to get to is when we talk about practical, we also need to talk about does that soreness track with actual performance recovery? And so what this study looked at that Lauren referred to that are reviewed in mass was essentially if somebody does a hard bout of training and then soreness increases and in one condition as individuals don't use any recovery modality, but in another condition, they use something like cold water immersion or massage and that attenuates soreness. Does that actually track with recovery of say squat performance or bench press performance or deadlift performance or whatever it might be, velocity of the lifts. And typically what we see is that the recovery of these indirect markers of muscle damage, muscle soreness, uh, uh, creatine kinase, things like that, they don't actually track with performance. Now there is merit in looking at soreness in and of itself, and that could speak to motivation to train and how somebody is feeling. But ideally you'd want that metric to track with recovery. So in addition to that, when I see something like cold water immersion or massage, these aren't very practical recovery modalities. They might be something where you have to find a licensed massage therapist, or you have to go set up an ice bath or even go to a facility for it. Additionally, with cold water immersion, while it does have acute benefits, I think it's been well established now that if used consistently, let's say multiple times for a week for the long term, it can actually attenuate the rate of hypertrophy or attenuate even strength gains. There's one study showing that on strength gains now because it tends to blunt the response of uh, anabolic uh, pathways associated with muscle muscle hypertrophy. So there are downsides to some of those factors. And then the other thing that I get to with recovery modalities is if you always feel like you need a recovery modality, meaning you're always beat up from training, Perhaps searching for the latest and greatest recovery modality isn't where you need to look. Perhaps it's looking at your training and saying, hey, am I doing too much volume? Do I need to scale this back a little bit? Because if you're a pretty well-trained individual and you get into your training program and, and, and you're making good progress, you shouldn't be that beat up all of the time. So I would take a look at your volume, see if you can rearrange that first, maybe decrease some sets, maybe take a little bit longer rest intervals, Maybe, um, you know, you need to look at the positioning of your exercises within a week. Maybe every time you try to squat heavy, you're doing something like RDLs 48 hours before um, that trains through a, a long, long range of motion. And now you have a little bit more fatigue and perhaps that's the reason you're under recovered and not necessarily that recovery modality. So I think all of those things need to go together. If you do all those things and you still need a recovery modality or you're in an overreaching block. Um, or let's say you're a bodybuilder that's in prep and you're calorie restricted, there are certainly reasons where somebody would need to recover modality. Then what are you looking for? There, the other practical ones I mentioned were low intensity walking and cycling, uh, increasing blood flow to the muscle, and then uh, foam rolling as well. I did write an article recently on post-exercise muscle ischemia, which is to occlude blood flow to the area 
then you release that knee wrap or tourniquet, and then you let the reperfusion, the blood flow come back to the area. That is also a fairly practical strategy. So I would opt for one of those. The difference in the attenuation of muscle soreness doesn't seem to be particularly um, different between these different recovery modalities, which is why for the practical reasons, I would opt for a low intensity walking, cycling, or the foam rolling, or even the post-exercise muscle ischemia. So recovery modalities are overrated if you're not under-recovered, if you're feeling pretty fine and you're in a normal training situation where you're not doing a lot of overreaching and you don't feel super beat up all the time. If you do feel super beat up all the time, take a look at your volume first, your training allocation first. If you make adjustments there and you still need a recovery modality, I would ask yourself, what are the long-term implications of this? Cold water immersion may attenuate your progress. Then I would ask yourself, is it practical? And does it track with recovery of performance, right? So when that modality tends to work, does it actually improve performance back to baseline? Or is it in just improving indirect markers of muscle damage? Those are all the things, Lauren, that I'd keep in mind when looking at recovery modalities. Do you say, do you think some of these, particularly the the ice baths and the cold plunging, have become so trendy because they have benefits outside of recovery of performance, or do you think there's there's another reason that that they're you know increasingly popular? The, I think on it can be both, right? So there there is a lot of talk and a lot of you know popular media. Um, regarding, you know, okay, the cold plunge, right? That's typically the terminology that you hear, right? I'm going to do, oh, just do a 10 second cold plunge or a one minute cold plunge or whatever they're doing. Um, and so I think that's certainly picked up in our, in our kind of corner of, 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 you know, what we do, I think cold water immersion or ice baths have been around for, for a bit longer in terms of people being aware of them. Uh, and I, I, I see them from my viewpoint, having been met as, you know, kind of people having mixed emotions about them because people do see that they can be effective acutely, but the data on the long-term attenuation of hypertrophy cold water immersion has been known for a while. I think I wrote about it in the first volume of mass, which was back in 2017. And, you know, people started to pick up on that then. So I do agree with you, whether it's, you know, cognitive benefits or other benefits that individuals are talking about from a cold plunge. And that that tends to be something that appeals to a to a, a very broad audience. And so that that could have kind of permeated its way in to what we do a little bit into lifters a little bit. So I'm sure that there is some of that. Um, but I do think there is a is a healthy camp of folks who have been aware of cold water immersion for a while. Um, all the benefits and the potential negatives of the long-term usage. But to your point, yeah, the cold plunge, which is what I think they call it, is is uh, kind of what has kind of permeated its way over here for sure. Yeah, I think there's also potential application if you're a competitive athlete and you're in season and obviously you're not in a position where you're really trying to promote adaptation. You're just trying to kind of get through the season and you're really beat up. And so maybe in that scenario, you'd want to throw everything against the wall and and kind of see what sticks. Yeah. So that, I think that's a great point. And that's a little bit of a different scenario, right? Whereas if, especially if you're looking for something that is going to work acutely or work within that one week, 
Um, so like, let's say you're, you're a competitor in whatever sport it is and you have two a days, um, you know, you are an athlete and you're going to play your sport, you're a collegiate athlete and you're going to your preseason. And, you know, I know when I played college sports, we had four days in preseason and in, in the August heat, and it was terrible. Um, and so you would look for things, you would look for extra things and you weren't necessarily concerned about, um, the benefits eight weeks from then because you weren't going to be using it consistently. So in that case, if you're like, Hey, I got to make it through this week. Yeah. You're doing whatever you can. Uh, you're throwing that out there. You're saying, all right, cold water immersion, massage, and that sort of thing. And those athletes might have access to some of these things. Whereas a lot of people don't necessarily have access, which is why I tend to favor kind of the more practical, um, you know, methods of recovery for these sorts of things. You know, the other thing, Lauren, on this topic that I think is important, and when we talk about, or I mentioned your recovery modality, um, tracking with recover with performance, the one thing that I think is important is to find a metric that you can test. So, because you're not necessarily going to squat every day during recovery, although people have been known to do that for a couple hundred days at a time, squat every day. But you're not necessarily going to do that while you're recovering. What you're going to do is find something that actually tracks, let's say that's then going to correlate with squat performance. And in the literature, what we see is that vertical jump tends to be the best metric to track for your recovery. If you're looking specifically at squat performance, obviously that might not track with bench press performance, but there's a good study from Watkins, I believe in 2017. And Watkins et al. looked at a damaging bout of exercise and baseline vertical jump performance, and then tested vertical jump every day and squat reps to failure. And as vertical jump recovered, there was a quite a strong correlation with squat reps to failure at either 80 or 85% of one around. So as you're using your recovery modality, if it's on the lower body, the best metric you could probably look at for performance, the least that we have in the literature, is vertical jump performance. One thing that is a little bit trendy is to look at recovery of velocity at submaximal loads. The problem with that is, at least I found in our laboratory and some of the work I've done, looking at recovery of velocity at 60, 70%, it's too light to really get a gauge. And there are some data that show that the first rep velocity at let's say 70% of one RM is not necessarily predictive of reps performed in a set. That there is some, there's kind of some data on both sides of that, but I don't think it's a guarantee. So if you track your velocity at 60, 70% during your recovery, I don't think that's as good of a metric as how your lower body performance is gonna be as if it's vertical jump. So when you use a recovery modality, I would wanna know how's your vertical jump recovering? To my knowledge, that's the best metric we have. And so see if your recovery modality can bring your vertical jump back to baseline. And in that case, I think your lower body performance uh, would be doing okay. Great point. There's a comment in the chat here asking about, um, I'm not sure if you can speak to this, but anti-inflammatories and, and the effect of those um, on... Um, recovery or, or hypertrophy. I know there's some evidence to suggest that um, anti-inflammatories can, you know, acutely blunt hypertrophy, but I'm not sure that, um, and so perhaps that would be a reason to uh, consider not using them chronically, but, uh, you know, you might consider using them 
acutely in in the same sense that that we were just speaking about. You know, if you have a, a particular couple weeks of really difficult trading and and you're just trying to get through, then perhaps the potential benefit of that would outweigh the potential downside of the negative uh, the the negative effects on on the hypertrophic adaptations. Do you have any thoughts on on that? A little bit, yeah. So uh, one, you know, as I as I referred, and hopefully I'll make this the last time tonight to my very super mediocre uh, um, collegiate and athletic days. I remember you know walking in the locker room and and seeing guys you know just constantly popping ibuprofen um, you know before games, before practices, and I was I, I never I really did that, but I was just constant. So that was kind of my first taste of seeing people do this all the time. But we've covered this in mass a few times. I remember Dr. Helms wrote about it early on um, in mass. And to my knowledge, yes, it is theoretically possible for these anti-inflammatories or, or, or NSAIDs to attenuate the rate of hypertrophy. But the dosage is much higher um, that seems to do that than we would typically take. So if somebody is taken two ibuprofen, three ibuprofen a day, I do believe that's less than the dosage that would attenuate uh, somebody's rate of muscle growth over time. Uh, and so we, we should run this by Dr. Helms because he may have a better recollection of the exact dosage in those studies because he did review them. But I think the dosage is too high. And and that's kind of similar to what we see with a lot of things that are out there sometimes, you know, um, we'll, we'll say, all right, this happens or that happens. Uh, but then you look into it and you say, well, what's the dosage that they gave? Oh, it was ex extraordinarily high. And you see that with certain supplements or you see that, uh, in the medical field, you even see that in training, right? We talk about something like concurrent training and we can say, oh, well, uh, is aerobic exercise going to interfere with strength gains? And you and, and you made a great post about this on Instagram a while back, Lauren. And um, sure, theoretically, but the dosage of aerobic training that you have to do for that to happen is very, very high. Um, so and and so while inflammation is a necessary part of the recovery process, um, it doesn't mean that anti-inflammatories can't be helpful without um, interfering with gains. They can be. It's just that if you take a really, really high dosage that's too much, then you run into problems. I believe there's also a discrepancy between the influence on older individuals and younger individuals uh, in that respect as well. And that's always something to consider when you're looking at not only the exercise response, but the influence of a medication, because there's often some confounding factors or the fact that um, a, an older individual's rate of hypertrophy is going to be less than a, a, the rate of hypertrophy of, of perhaps a younger individual or the the older person is perhaps on some other medications or has some other underlying conditions that, that could factor in as well. But again, you know, I think that the, there's always going to be a cost benefit um, because, you know, well, we might argue that the hypertrophic hypertrophic outcome is the end-all be-all. Sometimes there are other things in play. Lauren, can I do something unprecedented unprecedented for office hours? Is that okay Please with you? Please go for it. Okay, because you're the, the Wild West tonight, you know? It is, it is. And so it's, it's a new day. Um, so what I want to do that's unprecedented is we are on the topic right now, you mentioned as aging individuals, older individuals. And so it is kind of a shame we don't have Helms here to speak to this firsthand. Mm. 
but we'll run it by him. Um, but while we're on that topic, a question just came in a chat that matches a question that we have already received from somebody in our document. So since we're on that topic, if it's okay with you as the big time host, I'd like to address that. Go for it. All right. So we have somebody in the chat here that says, I'm hoping you get to the question from Jason Gross about lifting cardio routines for health longevity for late intermediates who are presumably already strong and in good shape. And the question that they're referring to, I have right here says, as I approach 50, right, still a good 15 years younger than Helms, looking at longevity and health span, what mix of cardio and lifting would you engage in as a late intermediate lifter? What kinds of cardio and duration would you engage in? What lifts lifting patterns would you make sure to incorporate? How many days a week would you lift and rep ranges? And so it made me think of that question. And since somebody brought it up in the chat there, I thought it was a, a good time to kind of jump ahead a bit here and get to it. And so I, I think this is a really good question because, you know, oftentimes we we throw out there and, and again, to uh, channel your Instagram uh, game, Lauren, you, you, you had put out there a few times and you put in our Facebook group, how it, do people train men and women differently? And in a lot of research, there aren't sex differences, um, but we tend to say all the time or, or people tend to say all the time, do those exist? Well, one of the places where I think some differences do exist is in younger and older individuals in training. And there are data to suggest to get to Jason's question. And there's a lot of kind of small questions within it in terms of frequency, let's say, and recovery. Older folks do tend to take a little bit longer from training, to longer time to recover from training. So when we see in younger individuals, let's say, all right, there's a frequency of two to three times per week. That's what a lot of the meta-analyses show for strength and hypertrophy and what we typically recommend. Two times is better than one time per week. Three times, nah, we can't necessarily say that's better than two times, but it's just as good. And there's not really enough data to go above that. Although we do have some frequency studies comparing three versus six days when they're equated for volume. Personally, I'd like to see three versus six days when they're not equated for volume. That's one of the benefits of training with higher frequency. But nonetheless, we can say, okay, three days a week could be fine for younger individuals. For older individuals, there are data to suggest that two days a week is better than three days per week, that that extra day isn't necessarily going to be um, as beneficial. And I think, Lauren, you, were you part of a paper or your lab was part of a paper that talked about um, so, some training in older folks recently, I think I saw um, come across on, on, on PubMed. And so I do think in older individuals, it takes a little bit longer to recover. Even in middle-aged folks, it seems to take a little bit longer to recover. So in those individuals, I might be careful about how I program some training variables. I might be a little bit more cautious about training to failure. I'd, I'd probably stay shy of it. Um, you know, use RIR, use those tools, stay at about two or three RIR, maybe a few less, uh, uh, less sets overall per session. Um, be mindful of the exercises that you're using when we talk about lifts and lifting patterns. Understand if you're going to be tra training through end range of motion, whether it's RDLs, whether it's skull crushers, especially even if it's kind of, um, uh, you know, taking that tricep extension on the eccentric kind of past your head a little bit. Uh, these are exercises that are going to cause a lot of damage. You're going to take a little bit more time to recover from. So I would be cautious, not necessarily saying you can't use those, but understand you probably want to train with a little bit lower frequency, maybe a little bit less volume on those. In terms of working in cardio, 
I think cardio, uh, you're going to have, you may, you're going to have a little bit less on the limitations in, in terms of, let's say the frequency you can do it because you can take the intensity and do a more moderate intensity cardio. That's 20, 30 minutes at a time. You can recover from that. If you're trying to do something like high intensity interval training, you're going to have more, especially running, you're going to have a bit more of an eccentric component and then be a bit more mindful of recovery. So I would work in both. I think concurrent training at that age, um, you know, at any age uh, can be very, very beneficial for health. Um, the lifting for obviously attenuating uh, uh, the rate of sarcopenia or staving that off as long as possible. Cardio for the cardiorespiratory benefits, of course, the heart health, everything you're going to get out of it. But I would say resistance training, maybe on a muscle group, no more than twice a week. On average, of course, there's individual differences, but keeping that frequency a little bit lower, be mindful of the exercises that you're using. Understand if you train through end range of motion, you're going to get a little bit more damage and you might need to spread things out a little bit more across the week. So if I'm going to train through end range of motion and I'm having a little bit more harder time recovering as a middle-aged individual, an older individual, then I might do that on Monday, let's say those RDLs, and then keep the rest of my lower body movements no earlier than Thursday, maybe Friday. So that way I can make sure recover and spread those out. Um, and then cardio, I think you could probably do a bit more frequently if you wanted to. Um, just be mindful of the, the modality you're using there and the impact that you're using. So the, all of that is to say that there are some differences uh, in recovery for younger and older individuals. And although I said at the top of the show, recovery modalities are overrated, that might be a situation um, where somebody should consider one. Yeah, I think those are great points. Just just to add to that, I'd say that just as in younger individuals, there's a huge amount of variability in the, the response in older individuals. And a lot of the research that's done in that population is in untrained older people. And so the, the, the considerations that you would perhaps need to deal with when you're treating a novice older person wouldn't necessarily be the same as somebody who was physically active um, and perhaps actively training like Dr. Helms in the younger and middle-aged years. And so then when you get into your older age, as Helms is now, then he can still train perhaps more frequently and closer to failure because he's already been training, you know, in younger years and, and during middle age. Whereas somebody who is first approaching a, a resistance training program or a, um, a cardio program for that matter would need to, uh, you know, pro progress a bit more cautiously and, and maybe would need to be more cognizant of those recovery modalities or the, um, the, the, you know, muscle damage that you spoke to. So I think we, we do need to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of the research we have on older individuals are people who enter the research study as untrained and they aren't people who, you know, do have an exercise background. Dr. Yeah. Helms, welcome to the show. Thank you for making time for us. Hey, a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I, unfortunately, I had a attack of dementia and I lost the start time. But um, I'm here now. I feel um, relatively lucid, so I, I think I can participate. Excellent. Well, we're very happy to have you with us. 
I believe you had a question, Zordos, for Helms that we wanted to circle back to. Yeah, we and and I think Trex added some in the chat here and and may have answered it a bit, but we were talking earlier about recovery and after I gave my alarmist viewpoint that recovery modalities are overrated. Uh there was some follow-up in in the in the chat. Um and somebody asked about anti-inflammatories and and so Laura and I got into discussing um uh NSAIDs and uh taking those and and if those would uh, impair hypertrophy. And I recalled that you wrote an article in Mass a while back, and to my knowledge that um, it is theoretically possible, but the dosage that was used that showed that was uh, above the typical dosage that somebody would take of uh, an NSAID prior to training. And so while it could happen, um, it's unlikely with how most people are currently using them. Uh, but I wanted to circle back to you on that uh, because you're the one that wrote the article and might have a better recollection than I do. Recollection than I do. So, am I on the right track there, or do you remember that dosage? No, you're on the right track, and it's also not just the dosage, but I think we also have to consider the population that we're talking about, as well as the time frame. Um, because you know, unfortunately, when we are communicating science, we tend to kind of get the headline out, and then people tend to take a relatively like black or white view on it. And that's probably not the best way to go as we have seen with the data. So there is actually studies on both older individuals um, as well as uh, studies on younger individuals, which basically find divergent outcomes, which is pretty, I I think it's interesting. So it probably tells us there's a level of uh, inflammation that is quote unquote normal or facilitative, um, but that, you know, getting there can, can be a little different. So for example, older individuals tend to have higher levels of baseline information, inflammation. So when they're taking an NSAID, which suppresses inflammation, it might actually result in better outcomes, which has been seen. So I think that is uh, a really interesting finding, but yeah, it's to my knowledge, uh, there was a study by Lilja and colleagues, which I think came out in the first year of mass in 2017. And in, the, in those individuals, I think they were 18 to 35 years old, and they were taking 1,200 milligrams of ibuprofen daily for eight weeks. So that is a relatively high dose. Um, that's two to three times what most people are generally taking when they take ibuprofen. Um, and also most people, like when I get this question in the trenches, most people are asking about, hey, like, you know, I had a fever, I was a little sick, or I, you know, I had this issue, or... I have uh, like menstrual cramping. So they're talking about a period of one to two weeks. And I think that is really worth pointing out that if you're taking half this dose, and if you're doing it for a couple of weeks versus eight, it's probably not something to worry about. Um, and I think it's also just interesting to find that you can have the exact opposite relationship when you're looking at people who are not younger. So um, there was actually a study, uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember the author, but it came out, I want to say, and I, I can't remember, but there, there's an older study on older individuals that found the exact opposite relationship. And I believe it was actually with similar dosages. So I think that's kind of interesting. So instead of just having this black and white view of it, it's far more accurate to look at, you know, what is the potential inflammatory state of the individual? What is the dosage? How long are they going to be taking it for? 
and a one-off use or even a, a week or two of taking a reasonably high dose, but probably not a super high dose over a gram, isn't something I would worry about. Awesome. Let's move on to another question from the chat for you, Eric. When it comes to BFR training, do you have an opinion on how strictly one should adhere to the 30, 15, 15, 15 template? Uh, this person says sometimes he does variations of that and trying to increase the resistance level. Maybe if you yeah. could give the listeners just an, a brief overview of, of the template and um, and how that applies in blood, blood flow restriction training. Absolutely. So BFR, blood flow restriction training, used to be called occlusion training or originally where it came out of Japan, katsu training. So if you've heard of any of these, they're generally talking about the same thing. And the idea is that you are, um, excuse me, you're not fully occluding the limb. You want uh, blood to be able to travel in, but then not travel out as easily. Uh, so when this is actually done in a laboratory setting, they will use a blood pressure cuff or a specialized cuff. And they're not looking to completely occlude blood flow, but just to restrict it. That's why BFR is kind of the nomenclature we use now, blood flow restriction training. And the whole idea here is that it uh, enhances the rate of fatigue. Um, so you can get to recruiting higher threshold motor units and you get fatigue of the, the various muscle fibers earlier. So you can essentially uh, get similar levels of recruitment, uh, tension placed at the fiber level, and a stimulus for hypertrophy with lower loads. Um, and the traditional protocol is doing a 30 to 40 rep set close to failure, and then doing three sets of 15 after resting for about 30 to 60 seconds between sets. However, there have been other protocols that have been studied that produce uh, similar hypertrophy of just doing four sets to failure with a moderate to, to light load. So um, that hasn't been studied as much, but when you think about this from a conceptual standpoint, mechanistically what's going on and the fact that there is those one or two studies where they've just done, you know, straight sets to failure. I think there's nothing wrong with choosing a load of say 15 to 20 RM if you wanted to not really worry about it and then just do four sets to failure um, or close to it. You don't have to go to failure. In fact, there are some data that suggests going to failure with BFR might be a little much, especially if you haven't acclimated to it. Um, but nonetheless, that, that, that was an, an untrained individual. So I don't think you need to follow the 30, 15, 15, 15. Early on in the BFR research, I think myself and Dr. Zerdos have both recommended following that protocol. But that was, you know, probably 10 years ago when we were saying that, or even, you know, in the last at least five years ago plus when there wasn't as much data on using different protocols. Um, some important things, though, when you do it, make sure that you're doing it at the upper limb. So you're doing it at the armpit or the groin for limb-based training um, that you're wrapping to a seven perceived out of 10 tightness. Um, you're not wrapping so tight that you start to get like kind of like pins and needles, like it's a nerve compression thing, which can definitely happen. You can compress the brachial nerve and feel your hand going numb. Um, you shouldn't see discoloration. Um, you will probably get a pretty big pump. You might see a slight change in color in your arm or your limb, but it shouldn't be that that severe. It certainly, cer certainly shouldn't be going like purple. Um, it'll be more painful, but it shouldn't be like excruciating. And you leave the wrap on between sets. So that's just some general BFR advice. And then, of course, if you have any kind of um, circulatory issue, disease, uh, or you know prior concern related to that, blood clots, et cetera, 
I would not do BFR without consulting a sports medicine physician first. Yeah. You know, uh, one, one thing just to, not really to add, but just to continue to highlight, um, what, what Eric said. And so to me that, and I'm sure he can guess before I, I even say this, but the, the, the best thing that he said there is just to understand this conceptually. So when we think about the 30, 15, 15, 15, and I want to say this question came from Philip, who um, has been on uh, a couple of calls before. Philip, really appreciate the support. I, I, I know we commented, we interacted a bit in the Facebook group as well. So genuinely, I love the questions. You've asked some awesome questions over the few office hours episodes that we've had and uh, been around. So we appreciate that. And um, But just think about it conceptually. So you know, if you're going to, to 30 reps, right, then down to 15, that's because what, you're going to be a little bit more fatigued. You're not going to be able to do as much on the next set, that sort of thing. So you can take that approach, whether it's 30, whether it's 25, whether it's 20 reps, whatever it might be, something pretty high. And then you might do a little bit less on the next one. Like Eric said, going to failure on all of them might be a bit too much, but as long as it's stretching you or stressing you a pretty decent amount um, and then you're you're kind of putting in a similar-ish effort from set to set. I think that's kind of the idea there. You're going to fatigue. You're going to leave that wrap on. So just with so many things, understand it conceptually. Hey, mechanistically, what is it doing? Uh, I'm getting this metabolic benefit from it. Um, and so I'm going to not so much worry about adhering to this very rigid protocol, but I'm going to keep in mind, I understand what that does. And I can kind of do my own thing from that. Um, as I see fit, as long as it kind of falls in line with that. And to Eric's point about wrapping a seven out of 10, if you've never done blood flow restriction before, I would, before you ever actually lift with it, I would just wrap and see how it feels, understand, because it's not going to be comfortable. And if you're wrapping the lower body, you're probably going to have a wider cuff um, or a wider knee wrap than you would for the upper body. So if you're using a knee wrap, which is what's used in practice, you might use that for your, or an ace bandage for your your lower body. You might slice that in half down the middle. Um, hopefully my visual scissors were helpful, right? Um, it's like- Mike, if I may, they've actually got some pretty good BFR cuffs now. Yeah, that you can get those. They only cost 10 or $15. And while it costs almost nothing to use, you know, ace bandage and cut it, they're actually quite nice because they have a little plastic buckle on them. So it's, it's basically a convenience fee that I think is probably worth at this stage. Um, and they're a nice thickness that they work both for the upper and lower limb. Um, and then also just for anyone who likes um, like a progression scheme, one that I use with some of my more analytical or quantitative athletes and that I also follow myself is I will start with 30, 15, 15, 15. And I try to hit something around a nine-ish RPE on the set of 30. And that for the first time doing it normally allows you to get the three sets of 15, but the last set of 15 will be close to, uh, to failure. And then the next time I do it, um, I will try to get to 35 on the primer set and that will kind of, you'll be acclimating, especially early on. And the next time I try to get 40 and then once I can get 40, 15, 15, 15, then I'll go, okay, next time I'm going to go up to the very next load increment and I start back at the bottom. What you're typically going to find as well, because you're taking a low rest interval and that set of 30 or 40 is produces a fair amount of fatigue, is that it's going to be the first, the second, and the last set are that are the hardest. And you'll get a little bit of recovery when you go from that first set of 15 to the second one. 
and then it'll get hard again because you'll find you just won't fully recover between sets because A, the rest periods are short, and then B, you're staying wrapped between sets. If you're noticing you're substantially recovering between sets, there's no discoloration, the pain isn't that bad, um, it might be not tight enough. Um, so that's just a, a kind of one way you can uh, basically self-assess. The There should be a relatively noticeable drop-off in performance, more so than you would normally have with resistance training. But I would, just like Dr. Huda says, try it out, ease in. If you've never done it before, um, just get a feel for it. And the last thing I would say is um, there's not really good data that this is any better than traditional resistance training. The main reason I would suggest using it is in instances where you can't or don't benefit from using high loads, you could hypothetically or theoretically, you know, go, oh, maybe it's more metabolic stress, but we don't have good data on that, nor do we have good data just on the idea of needing to tailor a portion of your training on like, oh, I got the metabolic stress training and I got the the heavy load training. Just because something is a mechanism doesn't mean that there's an applied usage of it. Um, so, so where I think this really shines is when you, like for me, for example, um, when I'm trying to go through a period of time where I'm doing a lot of arm work, um, I can get elbow tendonitis that seems a little more load dependent. So I'll make half my sessions be a far, and then I can sustain a higher volume without necessarily, uh, kind of bumping up against musculoskeletal, uh, barriers to, to achieving it. Um, and then sometimes, especially with lower body compound lifts, I try to assess like what's the most fatiguing thing mentally. And sometimes I'm just not up for doing another heavy set of eight to 12 on like leg press, um, or squats or whatever my given compound exercise is. And I find that I always regret this decision, but it gets me to start. I go, you know what? I'll do BFR leg press. And then when I force that, I'm like, I should have absolutely done sets of 10, but it got me through that session. And then I'll switch back for the other one. So it's a nice like mental reprieve on a leg day where you don't want to like feel like your, your, your forehead vein is going to pop out of your eyeball. Um, when you're doing your, your third set of eight RM, um, and then, you know, the burning in your legs, you're like, yeah, I probably would have rather had my vein pop through my eyeball. But like you said, you trick yourself for that one session and it's another week before you sandbag and, and call it a deload. So it's good. Just a reminder to everyone who's watching live, please hit that like button, the thumbs up button. It helps us get this information out there. So Thank you so much for your comments and questions, but please like this video. So question for you, if you were doing supersets, would you follow the same template? Like, let's say we're doing a, a curl and a tricep pushdown. Would you leave the cuff on and follow that same template and double it? Or is that having the cuff on for too long, potentially? No, because you can kind of basically just remove the rest period. Um, so I, I will actually, I do this quite regularly if I'm doing that for arms. I'll just go to the cable stack and uh, wrap my arms and I'll do the, the 40 primer on coals, the 40 primer on pushdowns, and then 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15. Um, you just need to be, arms isn't that cardiovascularly tasking, taxing, excuse me, but um, I would encourage you to kind of manage your breathing, manage your form, relax into the fact that it's a little bit painful. Um, and you be prepared for that. Um, or you can kind of get sloppy and find yourself like sort of like panicking while you're training. And, um, yeah, if that, 
maybe I'm just a masochist, but I, I don't mind doing the back-to-back bicep tricep. In fact, I know I'm, I know I'm a masochist. I compete in bodybuilding uh, and I keep competing in bodybuilding. So, um, so yeah, I, I would say that just, just be aware that if you want to do it that way, yeah, it's more time efficient. There's no, there's no problem with it. It's basically an antagonist paired set while doing BFR. Um, you can do the same thing with leg extension, leg curl. I've even done kind of a little tricep, leg extension, tricep, sorry, leg extension, calf raise, uh, leg curl. For calves, don't wrap down at the knee. Don't wrap low, always wrap high. It, you won't feel quite as much um, of the discomfort and pain, um, and that's okay. But uh, wrapping around and behind the knee, there's there's just a lot of other stuff you can compress there, and and you can get like some pretty pretty gnarly tingles in your lower leg, which I probably wouldn't advise. So yeah, I, I have done leg extension, leg curl, and I've also done leg press, leg curl. Um, that one's pretty rough. Um, so I would generally just advise keeping it to the bicep, tricep, and the leg extension, leg curl. But you absolutely can do it, and then you just have to be in good enough shape and be able to relax into the 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 the, the traumatic experience, so that you're not kind of freaking out and hyperventilating unnecessarily. All right, let's move on to another question submitted beforehand. This is for you, Mike. How do you reconcile the discrepancy between evidence that longer rest times are better for hypertrophy versus other studies showing that drop sets and rest pause training is generally equivalent. Yeah. So I'd say first and foremost, longer rest times tend to only be better for hypertrophy than shorter rest times when sets are equated. Um, And one of the reasons is because if sets are equated, then you're taking longer rest you can recover a bit more and you're performing more overall total volume. Um, so that's one of the reasons why hypertrophy may be a bit better in that case. Um, and so I think that's important because there there are data that exists. I think we reviewed one of these studies in mass. If you're using shorter rest intervals and you add sets to equate for volume with the longer rest intervals, um, then hypertrophy isn't going to be different uh, between those those training modalities, at least for a lot of folks. And so I think that's an important caveat when looking at the longer versus shorter rest intervals is that, yes, if we go all the way back years ago, right, the, tr- the tradition was to recommend shorter rest intervals due to the hormone hypothesis and you create more acidic conditions, better binding of growth hormone, releasing hormone, better GH release, testosterone release, all of those things. And, uh, then we say, all right, so we should train with these 30, 60 second rest intervals for hypertrophy. Fast forward, and then, you know, maybe, you know, we're, we're looking at, well, there were a few studies out there. I think 2005, Atienen, 2009, Buresh, and then Schoenfeld study, um, you know, sometime later, 2017-ish, about around then, um, maybe even a little bit before that, came out looking at longer rest intervals. And, but we're seeing that when sets are equated, um, that longer rest intervals tend to be better. And that's that's good to kind of, you know, squash the hormone hypothesis, whereas that's not the causative reason necessarily um, for changes in muscle growth uh, for for to be, you know, to be more effective. Um, and so to reconcile that with the the drop sets and supersets and so forth, I think it's an interesting question. But Again, if we go back to the sets are equated point, that doesn't necessarily mean volume is always equated between those. And so what we're seeing in a lot of these studies, if we have 
drop sets versus traditional set training. And then you look at a meta-analysis, and I reviewed one of these meta-analyses in mass early in volume seven, is that muscle growth, as the questioner pointed out, tends to be similar between drop sets and traditional training. And a couple things on this. One, volume is similar. So when volume is similar, I would probably expect that. The other thing that I would point out is, and this is kind of a broader topic, but I don't I don't love the drop set literature that exists. Not because those studies in and of themselves, they weren't controlled well, they're done fine. But drop sets typically aren't used the way that they're used in these training studies. They're typically used as a sole training session of doing drop sets or a sole training session of doing rest pause sets versus a sole training session of doing traditional sets. And you're comparing like 20 minutes of traditional set training versus, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes of rest pause or drop set training. And when you use drop sets in practice, you typically use them on kind of like let's say you do sets of, of curls and then you quote, run the rack at the end of it, right? And do some drop sets off of that. You do your squat and your bench press, your, your heavier movements, maybe a shoulder press. And then you say, you know what? I'm gonna do some rest pause on, on these rows or on these curls or whatever it might be to finish up that session. So you're kind of using that more as an add-on or maybe a drop set on your last set of squats or something like that. Um, and so those are the comparisons I'd like to see in the literature is, when you're you're adding time efficient volume in that manner and and that's really that's really more of kind of a, a practical conceptual understanding strategy which is yes these things are good and they can be useful but when are they useful should you train like that all the time probably not because if you train with something like rest pause all the time although you you could right but if you train like that all the time, it's probably predicated on going to failure pretty close to it. Your session RP is going to be a bit high. It might be a little tough to sustain something like that. Um, so when is it useful? It's useful kind of as an add-on. It's useful to accumulate volume in a short amount of time. After your main movements, you need to be efficient getting in your assistance work. You wake up one day, all of a sudden you have very little time to train, only 30 minutes instead of an hour. Now you utilize rest pause for your whole session for that single session to get that done, but then you revert back to that normal training. So there's a lot there, but the first thing I'd say is longer rest does tend to be better than shorter rest when sets are equated. So if you're recovering a bit more, perhaps you can get a little bit more out of each set. When you add sets on the shorter rest, you tend to have similar hypertrophy or individuals do. Um, so volume tends to be king there. And I think that's what we're seeing in the drop set or rest pause set versus traditional set comparisons. The last point being is I would like to see in the literature drop sets and rest pause sets used more as they're typically used in practice, which isn't to comprise an entire training session, uh, but to be used to accumulate a little bit of the volume of a traditional set session. Can I add one thing, Mike? No, you showed up too late. So, Laura, next question. That's fair enough. Go ahead, Laura. I'll allow it. Oh, okay. Well, it's it's good. Cooler heads prevail. Um, yeah. What one thing I would also point out is that a fair number of at least the the first drop set studies that came out and some of the rest pause ones. Um, if you look at the exercise selection and what they're testing compared to some of the the lower rest period versus longer rest period. Um, you've got full protocols that are sometimes being done in the rest interval studies. Um, so people are doing leg press, leg extension, leg curl, bench press, lap pull down, shoulder press in these sessions. Um, 
well, you know, probably the, the most well-known drop set study is just on bicep curls. I think Ozaki, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah. So there's a big difference between doing the equivalent of a short rest period on bicep curls and reducing load. Because what we, what we often don't realize is that in these short rest interval studies, they often have to drop load to maintain the rep range, more so in the short rest interval group. So that is happening in both. So they are quite similar. You're a forced drop set from needing to meet the study protocols of an eight to 12 set rep in a lot of the short rest interval literature. That happening on leg press, it's very different than a bicep curl. And one of the reasons I think sometimes, and I could be wrong, but I think there's actually one study where they did match volume, but the longer rest interval still did better for hypertrophy. I could be misremembering, but I could see that in practice happening. And that's because the level of discomfort you're going to be experiencing, not necessarily true RIR-based RPE, when you're doing leg press, squats, deadlifts, like what are you going to apply short rest interval to, um, can really mask true failure. And um, we have seen, you know, hints of other data when you look at like the RIR-based research and just thinking about how high rep sets on squats make people less accurate at gauging RPE. Over 12 reps in the Halpern meta-analysis, less accurate gauging RPE. Um, I think when you're doing drop sets, rest, pause, and all these quote-unquote intensity or advanced techniques, they make a whole lot more sense with exercises that are single joint in nature or at least not lower body compound. I think you could probably do this on a lap pull-down or a cable row because you're not going to have so much global fatigue and uh, discomfort that can masquerade as being closer to failure. Because even if you're making up those sets, um, if you're doing a whole lot of sets that feel hard but aren't actually as close to failure, I could see that being a little inferior compared to uh, a scenario where you actually are able to get to the same effort level in terms of proximity to failure. So practically, when I use drop sets or rest pause, um, I keep it to single joint movements or exercises like that. And I really like to emphasize longer rest periods and straight sets and just giving recovery, especially when we're talking about lower body free weight compounds. Um, and then even some lower body compounds that aren't free weight, just because the amount of musculature you're training. So not to say that you can't adapt to it. There's some, some classic studies where they went from two minutes and then each week dropped 15 seconds off their rest period and got acclimated to 30 seconds. And that group did just as well as longer rest group. But if you're just going to come in cold, and especially if you're not in great shape, I think it's really important to think about the exercise selection when you're applying some of these principles just to complement everything that Dr. Zardo said. For sure. Any any rebuttal or was that acceptable to you? I did fine. I mean, okay. it's, 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 it's whatever. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's our show now. So you let him have his one and then we'll... We'll we'll deal with them again if we feel like it at some other point. I wasn't really listening to his answer anyway, so it's fine. That's how to do it. All right, let's go with another question that was submitted online. And just as a reminder for those who are joining us live or for those who are listening later on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you can submit questions anytime. There's a link in the description box. So if you have a question, then shoot it our way and, and we will answer it on a future episode. 
If you had pure bodybuilding goals, are there any arguments against very slow eccentrics, maybe three seconds? According to the person who asked this question, it seems to be friendlier on the joints compared to a normal eccentric speed. What are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. And I think this is where we do actually have to quantify like how slow is slow. Um, because we're stronger eccentrically, you can get away with slowing down the eccentric and you might even benefit from some degree of controlling the eccentric uh, to a point. And that point is basically at the point when you start impairing concentric performance, you could see an argument for that not being great for, for hypertrophy because you're probably impacting the overall like impulse, if you will, which is just the force time integral, force times time. Um, this is very similar to the, the question about like time under tension. Um, time under tension is great so long as the time you're spent under tension is actually high tension. But what in practice a lot of the times happens is they kind of forget that force times time component. They just think about time. And then if I'm lifting, I've got tension. So the time under tension, people will sometimes do things like sacrificing load or sacrificing reps to slow down the repetitions. But specifically this question, I think the question asker is probably already aware of that because they're specifically talking about the eccentric. So because you're stronger eccentrically, you absolutely can slow it down a good bit before you start to see uh, an impairment that is meaningful enough to impair hypertrophy. And I think there is an argument for how it could help hypertrophy, just simply being under control because uh, you don't want gravity to do the eccentric for you. You do want to be actually slowing the load down. And this is especially important for exercises where there's a natural stopping point on the ground. So like a, a deadlift, um, anything where there's a dead stop. Um, so yeah, I, I think absolutely going a little too fast on the eccentric um, from a hypertrophy perspective. And I'll talk for a second because I know Dr. Sardos is going to want to chime in here on, on from a strength perspective. It is important. Um, it will probably, like you said, you'll, you'll experience a little more control. And if that helps with your joints, fantastic. Uh, there's a meta-analysis. I, I want to say Schoenfeld, but I want to, th that might just be because I think Schoenfeld has done all the meta-analyses or been involved in them. So this may not be that showed essentially when sets start lasting or rush, sorry, reps start lasting longer than 10 seconds of intentional slowdown. That's where you can impair things. Uh, and there are some studies that compare I think four second eccentrics to two second, and you actually start to see uh, the amount of work that's being completed being slightly less. Um, that's not a proxy for hypertrophy necessarily, but it it's probably related. So I generally think like a two to three second eccentric, maybe as much as a four second eccentric is about as long as I would take it for most people, but do absolutely auto-regulate that based upon, you know, perception of pain, ability to get in the position, et cetera. And I think based upon some of the long muscle length research, um, I think you'd also be safe to even take a second pause in the deepest position. Um, that's not just a dead period that's only negatively impacting your concentric. It will probably reduce your performance a little bit, but it's also producing tension at the point where it's probably most stimulative. So I think there's something to be said if your goal is hypertrophy for taking eccentrics, probably not longer than four seconds, pausing in, in the deep position, probably not longer than one second. And if this does decrease the load a little bit, you could even argue that's a benefit. You know, if you're trying to get high levels of muscular tension, but you can do so without having as high of loads, and you are someone like this question asker who's experiencing a bit of pain or needs to be very careful before they experience joint pain, I think we can leverage some of our current understanding of uh, 
providing tension on long muscle lengths. The fact that tension is actually sensed at the fiber level, not the whole muscle level. Uh, so that means it doesn't need to be necessarily transferred to the tendon to the joint. And uh, like also combining this with strategies like BFR or drop sets, which also mean that for the total number of sets you're using, using lower loads. So there's some really joint-friendly opportunities out there to kind of answer the bigger meta question. But for strength, however, there's actually some data that if you can maintain, you know, positioning, that actually increasing your your eccentric speed might help you with the subsequent concentric performance afterwards. Uh, Dr. Zerdos out of his lab with some of his students has actually done some research on that. I don't know if you want to touch on that, Mike. For sure, yeah. Um, that was Joey Carzoli's thesis, which I think you were also on there, Eric. Um, I was. Yeah. And so before we get to that, I want to add a little bit to the hypertrophy discussion here because so I just posted in the chat um, an article that I wrote for Mass called How Slow Should You Go, which is available for free on our website. Um, so if you go to that link uh, on massresearchreview.com on the articles page, uh, that is one of the articles up there. This is actually one of my favorite articles I've written for Mass. I really enjoyed this one. I thought it. I thought the end product was uh, was was very good and very actionable and useful. And so, a, a couple things on this. Um, I agree with everything that Eric said. And there, at the time when I wrote this article about a year and a half ago or so, there were four systematic reviews or meta-analyses. Um, Dr. Holmes was right that Dr. Schoenfeld did do one of those um, meta-analyses. Um, now, that you shouldn't get credit because he is so well-published and so accomplished and done so much that you could have- pretty just, safe guess. Yeah, it's a safe guess. You could have gone with Gurdjick. Um, True. Would have been wrong in this case, but that's a high, it's a high percentage. It's like- you know, if I want to find out, hey, uh, name somebody that played for the New York Jets. I just say Ryan Fitzpatrick. He played for everybody. And uh, like three people listening get that reference. But um, you just I say do. that person. Yeah, I know. But you don't get a lot of things. And so um, looking at those uh, meta-analyses, the overall consensus for hypertrophy from those meta-analyses and systematic reviews, and then I'll give a little caveat, is that you can train the eccentric through a pretty wide range of durations and still maximize hypertrophy. When you get into really slow training, let's say like over eight seconds, that's when the meta-analyses tend to show that hypertrophy is compromised. It doesn't mean that it's not before that. It could be before that, let's say six seconds or so, um, but it, it would have to be really slow to impair hypertrophy. Um, but I think when we talk about duration, we shouldn't talk about it just in an absolute sense and that it doesn't mean it's the same on each muscle group. So for example, one of the meta-analyses from Hackett, which is also not a bad guess if you're discussing the meta-analyses. If you were to guess that Davies did another one of these meta-analyses, you'd be right. Um, and so one of the ones from Hackett showed that most studies examining quad hypertrophy found support for a slow, meaning three-second cadence, while those looking at biceps growth found support for a one-second cadence. Um, the study that this article, How Slow Should You Go, is a review of is Acevedo et al. And Acevedo in this study looked at um, a two- and four-second eccentrics for biceps and quad growth. And tended to show some discrepancies between those here. Um, so they tended to show that the four second duration may have been a little bit more beneficial for quad growth, but not 
for the biceps growth. And so it's important to to look at that, I think, as well. So relatively, let's say the four second is better for quad growth. I'm not saying that it is, but if we just take that argument for a moment, I think conceptually that might mean that tending to go a little bit slower on the eccentric is a good idea. So what would that mean on the biceps? That might mean that two seconds on the biceps is a little bit slower than somebody's normative duration. So I wouldn't get caught up in the exact number. It's also going to vary based upon somebody's limb length and so forth and that sort of thing. Um, like there's no way I could do a five second eccentric squat. It's just, it's just not possible. Right. Um, so it is overall, you can train through a wide range of eccentric durations and maximize hypertrophy. There may be a benefit, but I don't think we have enough evidence to unequivocally state, yes, you should deliberately go slower or no, you shouldn't deliberately go slower. I think what Dr. Helm said is is a great point. It's kind of what's comfortable for you. As long as you're not compromising the concentric too much, I think you're on good footing there with the possible caveat of, hey, it could be a little bit different between muscle groups based on what we're seeing. But in those four meta-analyses and systematic reviews, I think that uh, um, you can train, train through a wide range of eccentrics for hypertrophy specifically, but strength is a different story. Before we go to strength, Eric or Lauren, anything to add on the hypertrophy component? Just to clarify that the reason why it might differ by muscle group probably is not muscle group specific per se, but more how long are you going to be during in an eccentric phase. So like if you think about moving all the way from standing fully erect to into a deep flexion position, if you're like me, like you're six foot, my normal tempo is probably a couple seconds. Um, and then a bicep curl, there's just less displacement. So sometimes the the time it takes to move through a range of motion, like a calf raise is going to have a very short duration because uh, you're only moving from here to here, you know? So you kind of, I, I do think it's useful to think about quote unquote normative versus slower than normative or faster than normative for you for the exercise versus just going four seconds and applying that to everything. So this is a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and for strength, that's exactly how we framed Joey's study. And so Joey Carzoli, one of my master's students uh, some years ago, who went on to earn his PhD from the University of Colorado. So now uh, Dr. Carzoli, um, he he wanted to do, looking for his thesis, looking at eccentric duration um, on concentric performance. So this was an acute study. Uh, it wasn't a, a longitudinal study, but in the acute study, essentially, we framed it how Eric described and we had everybody find their normative eccentric duration, um, what their normative duration was. And then uh, we had them either go uh, two times uh, slower or 0.75 times uh, that eccentric duration. So if they were typically squatting a one second eccentric, they'd have to go um, three fourths of a second. Um, or if they were going one second in another condition, they'd have to go um, two seconds. And then we looked at their velocity at 60, 80% um, of 1RM, 68% of 1RM on the squat and bench press when they did that. And what we tended to find is that on average, and I, I think we're always hesitant to say for everybody, we always say on average because there's individual variation, but on average, I think it's really important in this study. When people sped up their eccentric duration a little bit, their concentric performance in terms of submaximal velocity, take that for what, what it's worth, tended to be better. And so 
is what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody is typically squatting too slow in the eccentric or bench pressing too slow in the eccentric? I don't think it does mean that. Um, it could be the population that we had, the individuals here. Maybe they weren't, um, didn't have super high technical mastery yet. Um, and so with that, they're able to, um, if they speed up a little bit more, perhaps they're, they're improving their technique a little bit. They're getting a bit more benefit of the stretch reflex um, if they're going a little bit faster in this case. But it wasn't everybody, and it was only on some measurements that we took. And so I think it's important to understand that in that case. Now, the the most important part here is that it was of their normative duration. So not everybody, we weren't saying to everybody, now you need to do this eccentric at one second, because I'll, I'll you know, although I made a joke about it earlier in all seriousness, um, so it hits home, if Eric and I are both told to squat, um, get that smile off your face. It's so annoying. And uh, if we- To be honest, as a bodybuilder, I wish I was your height. That helps. You know, like bodybuilders are the only ones who like, I, I'm 5'11", like shut up, Eric, you're six foot. Like, I know. <laughs> you're, you're the opposite of an NBA player who always lists themselves. You know, like, like Allen Iverson was listed at six feet. That dude is not six feet. That dude is my height, right? <laughs> and uh, um, and so if we're both asked to squat an eccentric at one and a half seconds um, or at one second, that's not equivalent um, between what we can do based upon our limb length. So we asked them to squat their normative duration. There's also other other data looking at, now this is on the concentric, but on the concentric, I think Gonzalez Badillo, um, when they slowed the concentric down to to half of their maximal intended velocity, the strength gains were were significantly lower um, when they harmed their concentric. Now, that was deliberately slowing down the concentric, but if you're impairing your eccentric, even if you go for a maximal intended concentric, it may be not quite as fast because your eccentric isn't maximizing your concentric. So for strength, if you want to be as strong as possible on the squat or the bench press, something like that, your goal on the eccentric is probably to do an eccentric that maximizes the concentric. Now, what does that mean? What is that duration? I'm hesitant to give an exact duration because that's going to be dependent upon somebody's limb length. It could be dependent on somebody's stance width on the squat uh, and other biomechanical features that somebody has. But I'd say the purpose of that eccentric in that case is to perform it so that it maximizes concentric performance. Of course, that's still under some control. Because if gravity is doing the work and you're losing control on the eccentric, that's not going to maximize concentric performance either. One other thing to say as it comes to mind is that it is possible that the appropriate eccentric duration to maximize performance is different at different loads, at different percentages of 1RM. Whereas you're probably going to need to go, let's say, um, a little bit slower at a heavier load. Because if you're squatting at a 1RM and you're going a bit too fast, you might not be able to turn that around in the hole as quickly. Um, we didn't see, let's say, that faster eccentric improve 1RM performance. Uh, we saw it improve at lower loads. So I think that's another caveat as well. Awesome discussion. I think we should go ahead and wrap things up now. Thank you so much for everybody who joined us live on YouTube. We really appreciate your questions and your comments. If you are listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star review. Share this episode with a friend. As a reminder, our Black Friday sale ends 
today, November 29th at midnight Eastern time. We're offering 30% off our monthly, yearly, and lifetime subscriptions. You can check those out at massresearchreview.com. We'll be back Less than four next hours, week. folks. Yep. Get it while you can. We hope that Dr. Trexler gets well soon. He will be back with us next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a great night, everybody.